in a way, it's very much linked to diversity and inclusion. I think because a lot of us are feeling, you know, kind of uncertainty, stress, anxiety, and obviously we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect our loved ones. But obviously, we're all in this together as well. And what it's made me realize is this need uh, for us all to be thinking about the impact of our actions on others, about reaching out to others who maybe need to get support. Maybe they're less well situated, maybe they're vulnerable. Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to a company's bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone, for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and welcome to episode two of my Why Care podcast. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, and I am your host. What's the shift that we're going to see in the world of work as a result of COVID-19? And how can leaders step up to one of the biggest leadership challenges they will face in their lifetime? These questions and many more will be answered on today's podcast when I speak to my guest on the show, Rob Baker. He has a 42-year career at Mercer, a global consulting firm, where his last role was the leader of diversity and inclusion consulting for the international region. He is a thought leader on diversity and inclusion and on engaging men to support gender equality. In recognition of his achievements in supporting women in the workplace, he was named Agent of Change 2019 by Management Today. He was the first male co-president of the major women's network, PWN Global, and now retired, he has set up his own company, Potentia, as well as being a key member of the Avenir team. We talk about the impact of coronavirus on inclusion and diversity, what organisations are struggling with in regards to inclusion, why it's vital to get right, and the importance of empathy in creating inclusive cultures and societies. Finally, Rob Baker takes a forward look at the paradigm shift that COVID-19 will inevitably create and what organisations need to do to prepare for that. The years of experience and knowledge comes through clearly and Rob's active passion for creating justice, fairness and appreciation is inspiring. Enjoy the show. Rob, thank you so much for being on my show today, a Why Care podcast. It's absolutely wonderful to see you. And I know that you've spent the last eight weeks or so on sabbatical in America. So can maybe just tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Hi, Nadia. Well, it's really great to be with you. And thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. The eight-week sabbatical was a fantastic opportunity to spend some time 
well, first of all, you know, decompressing and really sort of resting and relaxing after you know, 42 years uh, working with Mercer, the global consulting firm, and really sort of getting a chance to reflect on what I wanted to do next. I was very, and still am very convinced that, you know, I've still got a lot to offer. I want to work what I'm calling my next stage of my career. So this was an opportunity to really think about that a bit more. I read some very interesting books, spoke to some interesting people and thought through what I wanted to do. So it was just a fantastic time. But of course, while we were away, all of the coronavirus pandemic was, was starting to um, happen and come through. So I think we were very, very lucky to on the timing of our trip that we could do it when we did it and also get back to the UK safely. Um, so we got back a couple of weeks ago. But obviously, we've come back to a very different world to the one we left. Yeah, indeed. And I think now more than ever, um, you know, our conversations relevant and the world has shifted so much that it. I think from the time when we first put this podcast uh, recording in the diary, probably end up with a very different conversation now in terms of insights for organisations. You know, what can they do to create a more inclusive organisation in this very bizarre time where we're all in our homes and, and the organisation so couldn't be more dispersed? So, yes, I'm really excited. Yeah, I mean, as you said, obviously the thing that certainly occurred to me was our conversation today was going to be very different than it would have been a few months ago in the light of where we all are with coronavirus. And in a way, it's very much linked to diversity and inclusion, I think, because a lot of us are feeling, you know, kind of uncertainty, stress, anxiety. And obviously we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect our loved ones. But obviously we're all in this together as well. And what it's made me realise is this need uh, for us all to be thinking about the impact of our actions on others, reaching out to others who maybe need to get support, maybe they're less well situated. It's very hard for us to know exactly how it's all going to pan out really yet and what the long-term effects are going to be. But what I'm hoping is we're going to continue to value our relationships that we have, um, that we're going to continue to value especially global relationships and realise how interconnected we are and how interdependent we are. So this whole coronavirus background has certainly upended my thinking about my next stage, but it's also kind of reinforced my feelings that we need to value more and more the benefits of a diverse and inclusive world. And we've really got to make sure that what I regard as core values of, of justice, fairness and appreciation of others prevails. So I just wanted to kind of put that context there because it's going to reflect and be threading through all the different things we discuss. Before we get into sort of the current state of play, tell me a little bit about your last role. So when you were at Mercer, before you retired, you were the leader of diversity and inclusion consulting. So what did that involve? Why were you interested in such a, a role? And tell me a little bit about what you found in when you were talking to organisations and you were consulting in organisations. So the role that I had at Mercer before I retired, as you mentioned, was leader of diversity and inclusion consulting in our international region, which is everything outside the US and Canada. And, and what I was trying to do in that role was really build on the great work that Mercer had done in the past in the diversity and inclusion space, especially around its groundbreaking research on when women thrive. And specifically, what I wanted to do was enhance Mercer's brand and its impact in the diversity and inclusion field, uh, develop our value proposition to clients, how we could support. And of course, you know, it was to increase the amount of consulting work that we did with clients in the diversity and inclusion space. That was the purpose of the role. And I think the reason that I kind of went for it, because I mean, I had 42 years at Mercer, I've done a variety of different roles, but this was the last role that I had. And the reason I was drawn to it really was really this passion and idea that we can create better and happier companies, workplaces, families, and also individuals by giving everybody an opportunity to be valued, to progress and realize their full potential. And I think how this started for me 
was when I took the role on the board of the Women's Network, PWN Global, the leading these women's network, I kind of realized that, you know, we've still got all these challenges of achieving gender equality. And actually, there's really good roles that men can play to help support and advance gender equality. So that was kind of like a starting point. And then I got into really thinking through, well, actually, there are real challenges for organizations in building diverse talent and bringing diverse talent in. But I think one of the key challenges that I found in this work that we did was actually many leaders of organizations really don't understand or don't appreciate why this is so important. They don't really value the benefits that having a diverse and inclusive workforce brings. A lot of them say they do, but when you look at their actions, it doesn't really appear that the actions really bear that out. What I saw was that organizations were still drawing their workforce from sources that weren't allowing them to have enough diversity. And they don't have the right programs, they don't have the right policies in place to support diverse colleagues when they come in anyway. And I was aware, and increasingly there are many studies, and you're aware of them too, I'm sure, that show actually organizations benefit from diverse and inclusive Mm. talent. They benefit from different thinking, new ideas, innovation. And, you know, these organizations that don't take this seriously or don't value it are really missing out on real economic value and shareholder value. So I felt when I left Merce, there was still a huge amount more to do. And so I want to continue to play my part in building more diverse and, and inclusive world and obviously now I'm going to do this in my next stage career. I find it fascinating, actually, that despite the business case being very, very clear, actually organisations are still working towards and for figuring out what it means to embrace diversity in their organisation. Do you think organisations are still trying to figure out why? Or do you think they've got the why, they just don't know the how? There's much more awareness now of the why. And I think there's definitely not enough awareness of the how. So they definitely need support with that. I was surprised, perhaps even shocked, how many organizations I spoke to didn't really get the why in the first place or didn't relate to their business sufficiently. I think for many companies, they were being driven by, as you would probably expect, you know, kind of short-term goals towards um, shareholder value, corporate performance, hitting targets, et cetera, very much had a business as usual mentality. You know, we've got to focus on this. It's urgent. The world is changing fast. We're being disrupted. You know, we've got to move faster. And I don't think they felt any work that they did in diversity inclusion would come quickly enough or have the kind of benefits that they wanted in terms of short-term and immediate corporate performance. So I felt many organizations were thinking, you know, like, oh, this all sounds good and we should do it at some point, but do we need to do it now? That's fascinating. And this is the classic problem of, you know, if you put something off, which you should be doing, actually, you might find that really, if you'd started it, you'd already be in a better position. So real concerns that there weren't enough organizations really appreciating how this could make such an impact on them. And obviously, it does take a while to put in place diversity and inclusion programs, but it doesn't take forever. And you can actually make progress fairly quickly. And you can start to show that you're an organization that really values diverse and inclusive talent. And you can start seeing that showing up in the way that you recruit, attract and retain your staff, you know, sort of fairly quickly. I hear that. And I've seen it as well in organizations. It's almost like it's so intangible. How do we know we've got there if we do it? And so it's like, how do we measure this thing called an inclusive culture or an organization? It's almost so big that they feel stuck. It paralyzes them because it's so such a big thing to do. Do you have any sort of best practice kind of tips that you've seen or things that organizations have implemented that were able to be measured and that really did show a, a massive impact? Well, I think the way we used to get the attention, still do get the attention of leaders, is to ask them to think about what's happening in the world, what's happening with their business, uh, what's happening with the talent that they want to bring into their organization. 
and what's happening with their customers and also what's happening with their shareholders as well. And when you get them thinking about this, they start to see the need for more attention to be paid to diversity and inclusion. So, for example, if you talk to them about the talent, they're always talking. I speak to many CEOs that say, we need more innovation. We need new ideas. They kind of realize, well, actually, where are those new ideas going to come from? Are, are they going to get different thinking from attracting and retaining the same kind of people? their customers are starting to want more diversity. So whether that's a firm wanted to employ consultants or individuals wanted to buy a new car, I mean, customers are increasingly diverse. And if companies don't realize that, they're missing out. And then, of course, shareholders are also uh, realizing now, I think there's a growing list of investors in companies who say, we recognize the benefits of gender equality. We don't see enough gender equality in your organization, especially on your board. We think that's going to be deleterious to us over the longer term in terms of our shareholder return. So actually, we're not so keen to be investing in you. So there are very clear studies that show shareholder return is better in organizations that are more, are more balanced. So that's the kind of key area to focus on to really get these organizations to pay attention. But then, of course, the leaders have got to start doing something different. And what they need to do is they need to start being role models for modeling this diversity inclusion. They need to start promoting diverse talent. They need to recognize that diverse talent. They need to take realize the extra steps they need to do to give that talent opportunity. They need to be changing the policies and the programs in their organization so that their organization can be seen to be an organization that does want to attract and retain diverse talent. And those leaders can also be out there on the public stage talking about why this is so important to their business, but also why it's more important as well. And I think the successful organizations are ones that have been able to do that. I mean, I've been very lucky to work with successful organizations in my time at Mercer. And one organization I worked with very closely was Unilever. I still follow Unilever very closely and all the great work that they've done mm. in terms of transforming their organization into being more diverse and inclusive. How they've got, I think it's now half their leadership is female, for example. There's more diversity in their leadership than ever before. Yeah, really impressive. They're very proud of that, as they rightly should be. They're also very proud of that they're reaching out to their customers with non-stereotyped advertising, for example. And so they thought through the impact on the whole of their business of being an organization which has a purpose, which stands for something which everybody can relate to. So there's lots that leaders can do it. It definitely starts with leaders. Yeah. Leaders need to get it and then leaders need to practice it, not just talk about it. Yeah. And that's exactly what I've seen as well. The organisations that are slower, if you see the gender pay gap reporting from one year to the next, those organisations that have barely moved or even unfortunately gone backwards, the key really is that the senior leaders aren't living it. They're not speaking about it. They're not role modelling it, as you just mentioned really in caring responsibilities and how that plays a big role in a gender inclusive organisation. So from what you've seen organisations doing with regards to supporting people in their caring responsibilities, to what extent is that, do you think, a factor in how quickly they've managed to change this dial with regards to gender inclusion? Yeah, I think it's been really important. And I think we've seen some really good steps, but there's a huge amount more to be done. And I think what I sort of saw in a lot of the work that I did with men, for example, in gender equality. So one of the things that I was doing was trying to work with groups of men on how can men be looking at their role in the workplace now and their role in gender inclusion and gender equality. Yeah. And I, I ran a number of workshops with men just talking about the issues for them. And what became clear is that men do want to talk more about their emotions. Yeah. They want to talk about mental health. They want to talk about wanting to have a greater role in childcare and actually the home, etc. But they 
I've always felt kind of held back, if in a sense, by the stereotypes that exist around this and where, you know, either colleagues or their organization or their managers would see them as being less serious about their careers or not as dedicated as it were to their work. I think a big part of what's needed to happen here is that we've needed to open up that conversation so that men and women and all genders can talk about the stereotypes, the roles and the challenges that they face. And, you know, a key part of that, I think, is around uh, caring. So organizations have needed to make it clear that they want to support all their employees if they want to uh, be parents, for example, and take on and take on parental leave. They want to offer opportunities to work flexibly. They want, however, to still show that their employees can make career progress and be recognized for those contributions. So the companies that have been putting those kind of programs in place, I think, have really seen the benefits and there's a huge amount of extra loyalty that comes from employees. Oh, totally. When organizations offer these opportunities. So um, I think you're very right. I think we are in a different era now. The generation of, for example, men I'm working with now, the younger generation of men coming through, they actually do want to do more. They want to take on more caring responsibilities. They want to also progress their careers as well. So I think the organizations that are really getting this are the ones that are making that a bit easier for them to, first of all, voice their need and their desires to be what I call whole in the workplace and give them that opportunity to take the parental leave, to work flexibly, etc., but still pursue their careers as well. Yeah, because one of the things you just mentioned there was around stereotypes and the workshop that we ran at Mercer around shattering stereotypes was aimed at trying to get men and women to share their stories, to share some of the language that was used by men for women and women to men in terms of the expectations that each of them have of each other. And it actually left people thinking and quite surprised from what I recall around, I never knew that that, that happened in this organisation, that people actually said that to you. I can't believe that, that that's the case here. It made me think about the importance of empathy and the importance of opening up that sharing of lived experiences and how crucial that is. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you think we can shatter those stereotypes? Yes, uh, it was great fun working on that uh, workshop. It was brilliant, wasn't it? And in fact, actually, it was so successful and we got such good feedback that actually we repeated that in our Chicago office. I mean, our session was more about how men and women uh, face stereotypes, etc. The session we did in Chicago was around every type of stereotype uh, across the full range of diversity and inclusion. The thing that really came out of that, I think, was what we realised was that stereotypes are very powerful, yeah. that they are there, they exist, that they're very powerful in society and in companies and even in all of our own minds, but they can hold us back as well. And, you know, the classic one I had was this little girl who wanted to be a firefighter, but she could never find any books with girl firefighters. There were always boy firefighters or men firefighters. And she went to her mum and said, you know, mum, can girls be firefighters? And her mum said, of course they can. And her mum went onto the internet and she sent a message out there, are there any female firefighters out there? You know, my daughter thinks that there aren't. Sort of thing. And immediately she got a response from all these female firefighter crews. It was a tremendously heartwarming story about how that little girl could, could be reassured that actually whatever career she wanted and the firefighter included, she could do it. So I think that whole thing about stereotypes being powerful and holding us back. And there's equally powerful stereotypes for men. Can men be nursery teachers, for example, is what's holding them back there. Going back to the sessions that we ran, I think what became very clear to me was that 
women have been experiencing these uh, issues, whether it's microaggressions or stereotyping in the workplace for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And the stories that the women told in the workshops that we run, very, very powerful around what they saw and felt and were experienced in, in the workplace. And they had a way of articulating them we're very, very used to. I think for the men, this was much newer for them. And I think they were much less articulate what we saw. So for example, I think the women, we asked them to write flip charts. And the women, women had four flip charts full. That's it. The men had about half a flip chart basically full. Yes. The men had much less in a sense to say, but actually when they raised the points that they raised, I remember one man passionately saying, you know, he wanted to go and leave early for his daughter's school play. And one of his colleagues, male colleagues said, well, can't your wife go? He felt so disappointed in his colleagues and so upset that they had that view. Men still feel very deeply about these things, but I think we're still building our language of articulating the impact of this. But the best thing that comes out really here and what we did, Mm. I think very successfully, was sharing. When you have the men talking to the women about what the men experience and the women talking to the men about what the women experience, there's that sharing and that understanding of each other's perspectives, which I think then creates greater understanding between the genders. And when you run this as part of an even broader diversity and inclusion perspective, it really helps. So in Chicago, for example, we had black people talking about the impact they'd had with discrimination for them based on the fact that they were black, whether that was in restaurants or, or wherever. Yes. And you had people talking about how they were discriminated against, you know, because they were on a on the autistic spectrum, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think, as you said, empathy is absolutely critical here. I think what we're realizing it's even more important now in the circumstances that we're in now is that we need to be putting ourselves in each other's shoes. Yes. So for example, we need to be putting ourselves in the shoes of people that are over 70 who are very vulnerable and be thinking, okay, so what's life like for them now? And how can we support them? How do we support each other? And so more than ever before, empathy and getting rid of these stereotypes is absolutely critical. Yes. And it seems to me when we're talking about community, when we talk about the coronavirus We talk about bringing the community together and handing out those flyers through people's doors saying, here's my telephone number, you know, please, please do let me know if you need anything. It's almost like that is mirroring what we need to do within organisations around reaching out, actively reaching out and saying, I want to hear from you. Tell me your story. Tell me what it is like to live in your shoes. I understand that it's different to the way that I see the world and I live through the world. And I'm really interested in how you do, because together and through that community and through that inclusiveness, that's how we can be more productive, more effective. We can learn about each other and we can be happier as a society together. Absolutely. In the work that I do with men, they often say to me, great, so what can I do? Okay. And the first thing I say to most men is, listen. Yes. Okay. Listen to, for example, women in the workplace talking about their experiences and just listen, basically. And what happens then when they listen to somebody else talking about their perspective and then you know, take it on board and, and think about what you can do about it is the starting point for them understanding more about how their actions or the world as it is now impacts on the others and then gives them a better insight into what they can do to change their own behaviors. Mm. So, for example, I mean, I read a book called Everyday Sexism. Yes, I read that. Right? Yes. And she talks there about... Quite shocking, actually, some of those stories, right? Oh, incredibly shocking. I think all men should read Everyday Sexism. And it's been out for a few years now, but it's still a great book. It is. And there was a great website she started as well. It talks about women's experience in the workplace and in broader society and the kind of the microaggressions and the, and the various other things, that the very real harassment that they face. I read that book and it really opened my eyes because I didn't realise what women went through on a daily basis, really, at the hands of men 
and, and others in terms of the comments that they get, in terms of the treatment they get. Once you had read the book, were you more aware of it? Were you seeing it play out in front of you? Very, very much so. Really? Now, what was interesting was I talked to my wife and to my daughter afterwards about their experiences of it. And they were telling me how experiences they'd come across with my daughter, for example, when she was a schoolgirl, had been wolf whistled at by yes. you know, men in the street. My wife had said she was going down the street late at night, didn't feel safe. This guy was walking right behind her. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest, as a man, because I walk down the street, don't have to think about who's behind me typically. Okay. What I then did, of course, then I thought, okay, well, next time I'm walking behind a woman in the street, I'll go over to the other side of the street. And, you know, just make it clear in a sense that I'm not following her or anything. So I've been able to change my behaviour as a result of being more aware Fascinating. of what the issues are for others. And, yeah, once you're sensitised to it and you know more about it, you then spot it. And some of the work that we did subsequently in virtual reality was we created a virtual reality experience for men to put a virtual reality headset on and experience microaggressions that women experience in the workplace as if they were the women experiencing those microaggressions. And wow. it led to building empathy, if you like, through using technology, yeah. trying with men, for example, the experience of what it's like to be a woman in the world. And um, we generated some really interesting feedback from the men on what they saw. And they were shocked, really, actually, mm. at just how much of an impact this had, even in what they thought was a fair and equal workplace. There were still these things coming out. Yeah, I'm interested actually in your work. You mentioned PWN Global and we must talk about it because it's very rare for a man to be co-leading a women's group. And it was, I think, the first time it had happened in PWN Global. So why did you decide to take on that role and what do you feel was the impact of you doing that? Well, I think originally I took the role on because I've always been interested in equality, justice and fairness. I was very much aware of the fact that it's a man's world and men therefore had a responsibility to do something to make it a more equal world. I was quite lucky because through the Women's Network at Mercer that I got involved with, I got introduced to PWN. That stage was called Professional Women's Network. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to start reaching out and involving men because what they realised uh, was that you know, with men being 80% of leaders in the workplace and being obviously a very large proportion of line managers, etc., they didn't engage men in the conversation, that the women would just end up talking to themselves and progress would be much slower. Sure. So PWM was very far-sighted and they asked me to join their board. I was the only man on the board. Uh, so that was a very interesting experience. Yeah. How does that feel? I think basically, firstly, I took it on because I wanted to expand my horizons. I wanted to understand more about what it was like to be in that environment. So I wanted to use it as a way to grow, in a sense, my awareness of the issues that women face, but also grow as an individual in terms of how I deal with this. And what it was like was actually, it was quite intimidating at first, to be honest with you, because this was a group of very smart, very capable uh, women who did their homework. And so we go to board meetings and they'd all be really up on all the issues and they'd be very articulate about it all. And at first, I was struggling to keep up with them, Okay. partly because I didn't share all of the vocabulary. And to be honest, I think at the beginning, I think like many men, I thought, well, you know, I can afford to read the papers a little bit before the meeting. You know, I'll blag it a bit. You know, <laughs> and I realized actually pretty quickly that in this group, you certainly couldn't do that. What I also realized was that there were differences in the way that we approach things. So I asked, for example, fairly early on in my role for a budget for PR to get the word out there about uh, gender equality and men's role. Okay. And some of the women were saying, well, no one's ever asked for a budget before. A man comes on <laughs> and immediately is asking for a budget. <laughs> Love it. You know, and what I learned also from them was if I wanted to get an idea 
across to people. I'd come into the meeting and thinking, well, look, I've had this great idea. It's so good. They're all going to love it immediately. And they're all going to say, wow, Robert, what a fantastic idea. What I found was that didn't really work always as well because sometimes I didn't maybe articulate it as well. And I hadn't socialized it as well. And what I found, what the women were very good at doing, okay. they were very good at thinking about, okay, so who do I need to bring on board? to get this idea accepted. And they do a bit of socialization of it. So I, a lot from watching how they operated. And I hope they learn a bit from me in terms of how I operated. And I think we reflected on that and uh, we thought that that was true. So the board experience, firstly, being the only man on the board was great. And I did that for six years. And then after six years, I was looking for a change. And they said, well, look, actually, we've never done this before. We'd love to have a male co-president to really show that we are, were serious about gender equality. And yeah, so along with Sonia Richardson, who was the, the sole president at the time, I became a co-president. Yeah. And we did that for two years together. And that was Amazing. really fascinating because then I got really in the forefront of representing the network, working with the local city networks at PWN, like in London, Milan, Paris, whatever, to uh, help drive uh, gender equality there. And yeah, so I was very pleased in a sense when my time came to uh, an end to pass on the baton, as it were, but I'm still very active in the field. Well, I'm still very active with PWN and a global ambassador yes. for PWN, yeah. but also involved with PWN in London and really want to continue to get men engaged in this. And I've run some workshops and I ran an executive dinner last year because there's still a huge hunger for men to get engaged in this. And there's still a huge amount that men can do to contribute. You've now set up Potentia Consulting. Is that partly what you're offering to organisations or is it broader than that? Well, I think very happy to offer to organisations how they can get their men aligned behind um, gender equality and, the, and broader diversity and inclusion within the organisation. I've done a lot of work on that within Mercer sure. and also with other organisations. So that would definitely be something you know, around workshops and, and individual sessions with leaders around that. But when I took a step back from the work I've done at Mercer and that diversity and inclusion role, I was thinking, well, you know, what's the central challenge, if you like, that I want to be able to help with and I feel that I can make a contribution to? And to me, it came out in a single word, which is around potential, okay? And so I coined the phrase for my organization, Potentia Consulting, basically around the Latin word for potential, sure. which surprisingly is potential. But basically what I want to do is I want to help companies and individuals realize the potential that they've got. So that's help companies realize they've got amazing potential in their current and future employees mm -hmm. of all backgrounds, of all experiences, but also help individuals realize the potential that they've got. And so much of the work that I'm going to be doing, I think, here is about helping leaders understand and own. going back to this why. Why should leaders be focusing on this? Yeah. I want to help them understand more about developing their perspectives and capabilities around including a wide range of diverse and inclusive talent and getting the best out of that talent. And um, I attended a really fascinating workshop last year at, at London Business School mm -hmm. uh, run um, by Professor Herminio Barra, and it was all about the growth mindset. Oh, yes. And we had a number of academics talking about how organizations can benefit from adopting a growth mindset. Totally. Because it, it helps them you know, become more innovation, innovative and to grow. Um, one of the academics there did a, had done some research about, around potential and what he found was when organizations regarded all of their employees as having potential, they achieved much better corporate performance than if they just hived off a few of their sort of hypos, the high potentials, as it were, and just focused on them. Yes. Uh, so that really drove home to me that the more that we focus on everybody yeah. and 
helping everybody advance and helping unlock that potential. It's super exciting. I love the way your thinking's going. I think what excites me in hearing you speaking about your company and what you plan to do, you already have influential power. You've already built a lot of credibility in this space through PWM and you were recognised as the agent of change at 2019 for all of your support to women in the workplace. And I love that you're not retiring, quite frankly, because I think that, yeah, absolutely, organisations have a huge amount to gain from having you there um, facilitating and helping them with their strategies and creating a more inclusive organisation. Coming towards the end of our conversation, and I'm really interested in, based on all of your insight from your work at Mercer, from the conversations you've been having more recently, what do you think is the one big thing, if you were to choose one big thing, that organisations should really work on with in regards to gender inclusion, diversity, caring responsibilities, just anything that organisations in this next decade should be really focusing on? For me, the big thing that organisations need to get right going forward is that mindset, really. Organisations don't just exist to create shareholder value. Of course they do, and that's important. I'm a shareholder. I want to see my shares go up rather than down. Of course. And so that's important to me. But what I think I also recognise is that companies don't exist in that like financial vacuum. Companies exist to basically make a difference in the world, to provide employment, to create good products, to create good services to help people. It's really inspiring to me to see the way that organisations are actually responding to this crisis. In this crisis, this is where you see leadership and this is where you see what people truly value, okay? Yeah. We have seen some organisations just getting rid of people and making them redundant because of the coronavirus thing. Mm -hmm. It's in other organisations saying, no, look, for as long as possible, we're going to continue to pay our people, yes. to employ them, to connect with them, etc., and keep in touch with them so that we can rebuild when we get to the other end of this, whenever that is. That's what we should be looking at now, is organisations and leaders that are saying, we have a responsibility to society, so we need to close down in the short term because yeah. we don't want to contribute to the greater spread and growth of this uh, coronavirus. But we also have a responsibility to our employees who've given everything to get us where we are today And we need to respect our our responsibilities to them, but then also to the wider community. I think we're going to be much more interested in going forward also in in sustainability and how this relates to the world we recreate. Uh, Because I think what we all also realise is that we just cannot carry on doing business the way that we were doing business before. I think we did need a paradigm shift. It's very unfortunate, extremely unfortunate that this coronavirus has happened. If there's one thing that hopefully could come out of it is that we'll create a new paradigm around how organisations think, how they work, what their purpose is, how they deliver good things in society, and how we all work together to be part of that. Whatever our age, whatever our gender, whatever our background, ethnicity, whatever it is, We've all got a part to play in this and we're all connected in it. So we need to work together on it. Hopefully that's not too long an answer, but I think that's broadly the big thing that organisations and leaders, I think leaders are absolutely critical here. Individual leaders of organisations are critical to point the way as to how this should be done. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that concept of a paradigm shift following coronavirus um, would be ideal that it didn't come through that. I hear you. 
but it will happen and people will be working fundamentally in a different way. Our whole culture and society as we know it will be fundamentally different. And I do say to you know some of my friends that we are going to be our grandchildren's school project one day and they'll be asking us. So when you were working, you actually travelled to work every day on the train. And why was that? Because it's just not going to be the way that in their lifetime that they would know the working world. Yeah. So I see good things coming from this. I think that organisations and certainly leaders have to manage that uncertainty, figure out the path. We don't know what the paradigm actually will shift to and we're figuring it out. And I hear you that it's probably one of the biggest leadership challenges that anyone might face in their lifetime, actually. Yeah, um, So absolutely. That's definitely, I think, sort of to some extent, as an organisational and sort of macro level. I think there's also a micro level of this as well, which is basically all of us at home. So here we are all at home. The paradigm is shifting at home. So, for example, I'm at home with my wife. There's a much bigger discussion now. But I think here's an opportunity for all of us men, for example, to step up and do more in this space if we haven't before. I think there will be a paradigm shift at home. At least I'd like to think there would be a paradigm shift at home. I think so too. Because we're all going to be doing more of this. So we've got to think now, how do we share work? How do we share home? How do we how do we combine it all? So that it works for everybody, given that we all want to have careers and we've all got a contribution to make. There should now be no distinction between who does what. I think we, we're all up for everything. For me, the key thing is really, what can we learn? What positives can we take out of the horrible situation that we're all in? How can we use this opportunity to change for the better, both at work and at home and in our broader lives? Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Well, no, thank you, Nadia. It's been a real pleasure. And the questions we've been batting around here are ones I'm sure that a lot of others are going to have thoughts and feelings about. So I'd be very happy to hear you know, the feedback and comment that we get. Yeah, so people can get hold of you if they're interested. Are you active on social media? You can find me on LinkedIn. And then on Twitter, I'm on at Robert B-K-R, B for Bravo, K for Kilo, R for Romeo. Brilliant. Fantastic. So the links to everything that Rob and I have spoken about today are available on the show notes page, which is in the usual place, avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. Rob, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I love chatting to you as always. And I guess watch this space in terms of something that we can jointly collaborate on. And Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that, Nadia. So uh, <laughs> great. Thanks a lot. And uh, really enjoyed chatting to you. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. That concludes episode two of the Why Care podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. We could have continued delving deeply into this subject for hours. I find Rob's understanding of the macroeconomic context created by COVID-19 and his future vision of the paradigm shift of how we work so insightful. Do let Rob and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. And as always, I really appreciate the support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with friends and family. A huge thank you to Moro Kenji for editing this podcast and to Christiane Gross for supporting the show notes and getting it out there on social media.